Well, my name is Adam. If we haven't met, I'm part of the team here, and it's really great to be with you today. I'm pretty excited to, to preach this passage. When we uh, planned out our sermon series last year, I remember looking at this passage going, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to be here so I can preach this one. It's an amazing passage of Scripture. And I want to set it up by telling you a story about a giraffe and an elephant. Now, the giraffe was a carpenter and he lived in a beautiful home. The home was perfectly suited to his needs. Tall ceilings, high windows, and narrow doorways. And one day he's at home and he sees his friend, the elephant, walking past. And so he decides to invite him into his home. He says, come on in, make yourself at home. But of course, because it was a giraffe's house, it wasn't exactly suited to the needs of the elephant. In fact, he could only get his head through the narrow doorway. But never mind, the the giraffe is a carpenter, so he's able to widen the doorway and the elephant is able to go in. But when the elephant starts to walk around, the floorboards start to creak and to crack. And the giraffe becomes a little bit irritated. In fact, he's so noticeably irritated that the elephant says, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to make myself at home like you said. And the giraffe says to him, well, maybe you should take some aerobics classes. (laughs) Or maybe you could take some ballet classes to make you a bit smaller and lighter on your feet. Then you'll be able to fit into my home a bit better. The elephant sadly says, I'm sorry, but I don't think that will work. I don't think that will make me small enough or light enough. I don't think I'll ever fit in a house that is designed for a giraffe. Now, I hope the point is obvious to you. If the giraffe is going to be able to welcome an elephant into his home, he's going to need to build wide doors and strong floors. Likewise, if the elephant is going to be able to have the giraffe in his home, he's going to need to have tall doors and high ceilings. And the reason I share this with you is because this is a picture of the early church. In fact, it's a picture of every church in every age because it highlights the tension that is always there. The tension to create doors which will fit only our kind. The tension to build ceilings which allow only those who are like us. The tension to create churches with unnecessary barriers for outsiders. And this is sort of what is happening in Acts chapter 15. This event that we just heard read for us in Acts chapter 15, which is known as the Jerusalem Council, it really is the centerpiece of the whole book of Acts. It's the watershed moment. It's the turning point of the entire narrative. And it's a really significant event because it answers a really significant question. In fact, I don't know if there is a more important question than the one that we're going to be looking at today in Acts chapter 15. The question is this. How do we become part of God's people? How do we enter into God's house? How high and how wide is the door? Now, this question matters for all of us. I mean, no matter how you've walked in here today, whether you're a Christian or not, I mean, if you're not a Christian, this story shows you how you get into God's family. It shows you what you must do if you want to come in. If you're a Christian, as many of us are, this story is a reminder for all of us 
that we should never be more exclusive than Jesus. We should never make the door narrower than Jesus makes it. This story helps us to be very, very clear on the question, how high and how wide is the door into God's family? And this was a particularly pressing question for the early church. As you've heard, we've been on a journey through the book of Acts, which tells us the story of the early church. And what we've seen over the last few weeks is the spread of Christianity beyond its Jewish roots. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, has gone beyond Jerusalem, and it's gone out into the Roman Empire. And what we've seen is Gentiles, non-Jews, becoming Christians. In fact, as the chapters have moved on and as the gospel has spread out, we've seen more and more Gentiles coming into the church community. John Stott, in his commentary, says, The trickle of Gentile believers has become a torrent. There's lots of elephants flooding into the church community. And the question being faced by the church is this. What do we do? about all these elephants? Do we make them change so that they fit in with us? Or do we widen the door so that they can freely come in? That's the question on the table at the Jerusalem Council. How high and how wide is the door? So we're going to look at as we explore this chapter, and I'd like us to explore it under three headings. We see three main scenes unfold. After a few weeks in the wilderness of four and five-point sermons, Back in the promised land of good, solid, three-point sermons being reformed again. Let's do it. The first scene in the story is this, if you're taking notes. It's the dilemma. It's the problem. It's the issue. See, the story begins in the city of Antioch. Now, we've become familiar with Antioch. It's kind of like the home base for the early church. And it's the city of Antioch that Paul and Barnabas return to after they've been out on their first missionary journey, speaking about Jesus, starting churches. They come back to the church in Antioch. But they discover that all is not well. Look at verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. There's a group of believers who have come from Jerusalem, they've come down to the church in Antioch, and they're saying to these believers, yes, you should believe in Jesus, but if you want to be saved, if you want to truly be part of God's people, you must also be circumcised. Now, why circumcision? Well, because circumcision was the sign given to Abraham in the Old Testament, the sign of belonging to God and belonging to God's people. And so this group of People are saying the Old Testament law is still in effect. Yes, you should believe in Jesus, but Jesus is not enough. In other words, to put it simply, they're saying Jesus plus circumcision equals salvation. Jesus plus law-keeping equals inclusion in God's family. They're saying the door into God's people is narrower than just Jesus. Now, you can imagine that the believers in the church at Antioch, they would have been confused by this. This is not what they'd heard from Paul and Barnabas. You can also imagine that they'd be a bit nervous about this, especially the men in the community. I mean, when it comes to the matter of circumcision, the men had some skin in the game. Sorry, I really should have cut that joke out. I could keep going, but we've got much better things to talk about. They're nervous. 
They're confused. Now, you can also imagine Paul and Barnabas' reaction to this. Look at verse 2. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas oppose these, this group. They stand up to them. See, they don't just say, well, that's your opinion. That's your truth. They say, no, you're wrong. You're mistaken. And we cannot just accept what you're saying. See, friends, there are some issues in the Christian faith which are secondary matters, which we can hold with open hands. We can talk about them. We can debate them. We can discuss them. Baptism, for example, is an open-handed issue. We can talk about it. We, we can discuss it. You know, here at Oasis and in our denomination, we have a certain view of baptism. You might have a different view of baptism, and that's okay. It won't stop you from being a member here. There are other issues, though, in the Christian faith which are primary matters. They're, they're issues that we hold with closed hands. We hold on to them tightly, and we defend them resolutely. It matters like the, the triune nature of God, that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit the identity of Christ that is both human and divine. And what we see here, another primary issue is the message of salvation by grace. This is what Paul and Barnabas are defending. I mean, let's be clear what's at stake here. The gospel is on the line. The message of salvation is at stake. They're saying that you need more than Jesus to be saved. That Jesus is not enough for salvation. This is a massive issue. And it seems they know it's not going to be solved at the local level. So they know that they need to appeal to a higher authority. They need to appeal to Jerusalem and to the apostles. And so that's what they do. Paul and Barnabas, along with a few others from the church in Antioch, they head to Jerusalem, a 500-kilometer journey to the south. And this brings us to the next scene in the story. We've seen the dilemma, the problem, the issue, and now we see the discussion, the debate. See, after Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem, they share what's been happening, they give an update about what's going on, and then they put the issue on the table. Look at verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, notice who is raising the issue here. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. It's Jesus' old sparring partners. They're back and they're still causing trouble. But notice how Luke, the author of Acts, describes them. Some of the believers. This is incredible. You see, the Pharisees, this group who hated Jesus, this group who played a key role in killing Jesus, some of them have now come to believe in Jesus. The amazing, transforming power of God's grace. But now, these Pharisees are trying to reconcile their newfound faith in Jesus with their lifelong devotion to God's law. I mean, no one was more devoted to God's law than the Pharisees. They created laws that would help them keep the laws. And so now they're trying to work out, how do these two things fit together? Faith in Jesus and the Old Testament law. You see, I, I, and I think this is an understandable question. I don't necessarily think they're being malicious here. I think they're misguided, they're mistaken, but they're trying to work out how do these things fit together? How does an outsider become an insider? How, how do Gentiles come into God's family? Is it just through faith in Jesus? 
What about circumcision, which we've practiced for thousands of years? What about God's law? How high and how wide is the door? That's the issue on the table. And we read in verse 7, after much discussion. Now, I've been part of some religious councils in my time. And I believe it when they say there was much discussion. These things have a habit of going on and going around. But thankfully, we're not given all the details here. Instead, we hear from just a few important figures. The first is Peter. Now, Peter, of course, was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was an apostle and a leader in the early church. And he now steps up to speak. And this is actually the last time that we'll hear from Peter in the book of Acts. And it's a great way to go out. He stands up and he says, this inclusion of Gentiles in God's family, this salvation of Gentiles by faith in Jesus, it was God's idea. And it was done at God's initiative. See, he thinks back to Cornelius. Remember the story of Cornelius? He says, God sent me to him. I didn't go out and find him. No, God gave me a vision and sent me to go Cornelius the Gentile. He thinks back to Pentecost and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And he says, God poured out the Holy Spirit on Jew and Gentile alike. So all of us have our hearts purified by faith in Jesus, not by law-keeping. In fact, Peter says to these Jewish believers, he says, you really want to make keeping God's law the entrance requirement into God's people? He says, we haven't even done that ourselves. I mean, I don't know if you've read the Old Testament, but the whole Old Testament is the story of Israel's failure to do what God says. Again and again, they fail to keep God's law. And Peter is saying, how can we ask them, the Gentiles, to do what we haven't even done ourselves? It's a bit like, you know, someone says to you, well, if you want to be part of our climbing club, you need to go and climb Mount Everest. You might think, well, okay, that's, that's going to be a little bit difficult, but I guess if you guys have done it, you know, at least I know it's possible. They say, oh, no, we haven't done it. I mean, we tried, but we, we couldn't do it. But if you want to be part of our club, that's what you've got to do. It's not right. It doesn't make sense. So Peter says in verse 11, No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Peter's saying there are no different sized doors when it comes to God's family. The only door that we enter in is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's nothing else and there's no one else that you need. The message of Christianity is not Jesus plus. It's not Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus taking the sacraments or Jesus plus speaking in tongues or Jesus plus being reformed or Jesus plus serving or giving or anything else. The message of Christianity is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I like the way one uh, pastor named Skip Heitzig puts it. He says, imagine for a moment if these Pharisees won. Imagine if they had their way in Jerusalem. What would be different for us? He says, our hymns, our songs would certainly be different, wouldn't they? We'd be singing, amazing circumcision. How sweet the snip that saved a wretch like me. He says, our anthem would be, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the law of Moses. But instead, we sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound. We sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Anything 
other than the message that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is a distortion of the gospel and is no gospel at all. This is the message that we need to hold on to. This is the message that we need to push deep into our heart. Now, I know this is easier said than done. See, the truth is we so easily drift from the message of grace. We think grace is what gets us in, but then it's up to us to keep ourselves in. This is why when we have a bad day, when we don't read our Bible, when we yell at the kids, when we kick the cat, let me be clear, I'm saying that's a good thing. That's a bad thing. That was a faux pas. Bad thing. Don't kick the cat. We have a bad day. Look at pornography. Say harsh things to our spouse. We naturally shrink back from God. We think we need to run away from God because we think if God will ever accept us again, we need to clean ourselves up. We need to punish ourselves. But the gospel says that Christ was punished for you on the cross. The gospel says you can't fix yourself. You can't cleanse yourself. You don't have what it takes. All you can do is throw yourself into the arms of Jesus. His blood washes you whiter than snow. The grace of God in Christ means even when you've had a bad day, you can run to God, not away from Him. You can confess, repent, and be embraced. It is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. This is Peter's message to the council. These are his final words in the book of Acts, and what a way to go out. But it's not only Peter that speaks at the Jerusalem council. Next, we hear from James. And this brings us to the third and final scene in the story where we see the decision, the judgment, the verdict. Now, James, you might not know this, he's actually Jesus' half-brother. And he was also a leader in the church at Jerusalem. But it seems he wasn't just any leader, it seems that he was the leader. You see, his comments on this matter are the final verdict. He renders the, the final judgment. Basically, he gets up and in verses 16 to 18, he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Amos. And he does this to show that the inclusion of Gentiles in God's people, it's not some kind of random afterthought. It's not, you know, people making it up on the go. It's actually the plan and the promise of God. It's always been God's plan. And because this is true, here's James's verdict. He says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. What an amazing phrase. If you have your Bible in front of you, you should highlight that phrase. We should push that phrase into our hearts. We should plaster it on the doorpost of our church. We should not make it difficult for those who are far from God to turn to God. Now, let's be honest. Christians and churches throughout history, unfortunately, sadly, tragically, have at times made it difficult for those far from God to turn to God. And we could give examples, but I want us to think about us for a moment. What might be some ways that we make it difficult for those far from God to turn to God? Or let me put the question the other way. How can we make it easier for those who are far from God to turn to God? I think about preaching. You know, we want to preach the deep truths of God. 
but we want to do it in a way that is clear and accessible to both Christian and non-Christian alike. And if we have to use, you know, big theological words or jargon or Christianese, we want to explain that and define that clearly. We want our community to be accessible. We don't want to be a church full of cliques that are hard to break into. We want our facilities to be inviting. And when people show up, we want them to know where to go and where things are and what to do. This is partly why we've, we've engaged some architects to help us think about our building and how we might better serve people. How we might create a campus that is welcoming for people. We want our tone to be gracious. We don't want to speak condescendingly about people who believe differently to us. The door into God's family is wide open in Jesus Christ. And we don't want anything, especially secondary matters, to obstruct it or to get in the way of others coming in. And this was the wise decision of the Jerusalem Council. Now, I've got to be honest, it would be simpler if the story ended here. Don't make it hard for, for Gentiles who are turning to God to come to God. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the end. Put it in the letter, send it to the churches. That'd be nice, but that's not what happens. Because James isn't quite finished yet. Look at what he says next. He goes on. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Wait a minute, what? I, I, I mean, it seems like James is kind of just adding some terms and conditions on the end. You, know, you get a really good deal, it's got a little asterisk on it, you look down the bottom, and in tiny font it says, terms and conditions apply. Is that what's going on here? Does the gospel have fine print? Of course, the answer is no. James is not adding conditions to the gospel. James is not adding further requirements for salvation. That would go against everything they've just said. Now, James is giving instructions for their relationships. James is offering wisdom to protect their fellowship. See, he's saying to, to Gentile Christians, don't do things that will upset your Jewish brothers and sisters. No, you don't have to keep the, the Jewish law to be saved, but you do have to be sensitive to their concerns. You do have to live together in a way that is loving and understanding. That's why he mentions those four things, food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, strangled animals and blood. Those things were, were not only linked to pagan practices, but they were also highly offensive to Jews. James is saying, don't show up to your Jewish friend's barbecue and eat a rare steak. Don't bring a pig that's just been on a pagan altar. It's not loving or understanding. And so James's judgment here is actually incredibly wise. He's not only preserving the gospel, he's also protecting their fellowship. And friends, this shows us something that's really, really important. It shows us that grace is not freedom to live however we want. Grace is not permission to just please ourselves. Grace is the freedom of forgiveness from God. And it's the power to now live in a way that is pleasing to God and loving to other people. Ben said it to me this week, this week in a conversation. He says, when you experience grace, it makes you want to be gracious to others. And this is what the gospel says. It says, come as you are. You bring nothing to the table. Trust in Jesus for your acceptance. And then it says, now follow Jesus, die to self, live for God, love others, live a life of gratitude for the gift that you've been given. 
And this is why the gospel creates a new community where we not only look to our own interests, but we also look to the interests of others. We don't just think about our preferences, but we think about what's good for others. And you know, when I think about this, I think about our older members. You know, we have some older members in our church, and they've been part of our church forever, for a long, long time. And they've seen a lot of change over the years. They've seen changes to our building, to our service format, to our name, and perhaps especially to our music. In fact, I remember a story that John once told me. John Huguenot was the, the senior minister before me. And there was a time a number of years ago when the church first brought in a drum kit. It used to be down over there, believe it or not. Now, that was a big deal. I mean, we'd always had an organ, but we were now adding guitars and piano and now drums. And my old father, my, my granddad, he was one of the founding members of the church. And he went to John one day and he said, the drums are too loud. So we can't sing the hymns properly with those drums. Now, I was in my kind of early teens at this stage, and I was actually learning the drums, and I was playing the drums in church. Sorry, Opa. <laughs> now, John gently said to Opa, he said, Jack, your grandson is playing those drums. He's showing up to church to play and to praise God, and he's part of that next generation that we want to reach. And my Opa, to his credit, agreed. He let go of his preferences for the sake of the gospel and for the good of others. And so I want to honor our older members. I want to thank them for laying aside their own preferences for the good of others and the advance of the gospel. Now, now they didn't do it so we can be selfish. They did it so that we can continue to love and serve one another. So that we can continue to look to the interests of others. And so when we look at Acts 15, I love the way that, that Gary Miller, our principal of Queensland Theological College, kind of summarizes this. He says, we need to make sure that we're sticking to the truth, and we need to make sure that we're sticking together. When we do those two things, we stick to the truth of the gospel, and we stick together and live together in an understanding way, we will be a powerful witness to the risen Lord Jesus. And this is what we'll see in the rest of the book of Acts when we come back to it next year. And this is what I hope we continue to see in our church. We want to open wide the door with a welcome from Jesus. We don't, we don't want to make the door narrower than it should be. We don't want to put obstacles in front of the door. We want more people to find life in Jesus. After all, Jesus says to all of us, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have made a way for us who are far from you, to draw near to you, to come through the door and to find pasture, to find what we so deeply need, to find all that we could ever hope for, to find forgiveness for our sin, to find adoption into your family and to find hope forevermore. 
Lord, however it is that we've walked in here today, help us to never move on from the amazing truth that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Help us to stick to this truth and help us to stick together, to live together in a way that is loving and understanding to do what the Lord Jesus has done for us, to set aside our preferences, to, to, to not only look to our own interests, but also to look to the interests of others. We thank you for all that you've done for us and all that you continue to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.